you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? What of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. No. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Tell them there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chips, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Monday, November 17th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. The voice of Young Adult Cancer, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. Let's give it up for the Stupid Cancer News Team. Let's. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. And I'm Maureen Sweet, manager of programs and operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout this broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SB Radio. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. And tonight's show is when doctors don't listen. Join us for a 30-minute broadcast exclusive with author Dr. Leanna Wen. She wrote a book. It's a great book called When Doctors Don't Listen, How to Avoid Misdiagnoses and Unnecessary Tests. We're going to learn how to deal with doctors who seem to be too busy to listen to you and her eight pillars to better diagnosis as your possible solution with a survivor spotlight on Deborah Evanstein. And with that, we welcome you to tonight's show. Hello, everyone. Full house tonight. It is a full house tonight. Mr. Kenny Kane. Hello. Mr. Sean Shapiro. What up? Ms. Mallory Rivera. You're off mic. <laughs> Hi. Hey. Yell, yelling is good. Yes, and hello, Maureen. Hi. Um, well, we should just start out with the element in the room here, the bittersweet news that it is uh, Maureen bittersweet tonight. Oh, oh very sure. clever. Wow, we jumped right to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I guess this is actually my first public announcement yeah. of it to all of you live listeners and people downloading in the next 24 hours. Uh, yeah, this is my next to last stupid cancer show, and not just because I'm not on the show anymore. Well, you could still show up on Mondays. I still probably could. I could show up on Mondays. That's, I'll just keep going. Be, you're volunteering enough for too many things. But no, I'm I'm leaving Stupid Cancer as of the end of November, and it's very sad. But it is the next step in my career. Sean's welling up a little bit, um, and I, I, I'm very. Is that supposed to be crying? No, it's not. That's not like maniacal laughter. <laughs> She's too young for this. That was that was Peter Herman. Oh. Yeah. Is that him crying? No, that was him laughing his ass off. So, okay, well, as long as that's how you feel. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah. You won't be laughing the day after she. No, no I'm not. <laughs> uh, anyway. 
anyway, we're very proud of you. We, we wish you got to be. We know we're going to keep seeing you, of course, because you're kind of connected to us socially. And my children can identify you, so you have an obligation. Yep, and you're all invited to my Super Bowl party. You at the table, not all of the listeners. <laughs> have that kind of oh, 50,000 people. <laughs> Bring kegs. If yeah. you can find my house. <laughs> yes. No, I'll do that. Okay. My son had a good time last year getting lost and then finding him. Somewhere roaming around. Yeah, place. he just he just roamed the apartment. So he yeah. found himself. <laughs> he he didn't, didn't find himself. himself. It was a really spiritual moment yeah. for Kobe. Yeah. So oh, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll have we're you. going out next Monday, aren't we? We are going out next Monday. Everyone can come. That was that's right. come All to the party. No, really. We're going out somewhere in Tribeca next Monday. Very nice. So it'll be fun. Uh well the in the news here, Sean, uh Kenny and I and Allie Ward, our VP programs, we had a little field trip. Last yeah. week to the uh, city of Arendelle. Coldest place on earth. Coldest place on earth. It was minus three when we landed without the wind chill, minus 18 or minus 20 with the wind chill. That sounds um, lovely. Was, I won't curse. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had beardsicles. <laughs> you, you, you were, yeah. It, it was it was intense. It was pretty bad. Did we identify the city as Denver? I think it was Yeah, it was Denver. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was Denver. Unbelievably. Unbelievable. Meanwhile, it was minus 80 with the wind chill in Minneapolis, so not minus nearly. Minus 80? Yeah, with the wind chill. How does it get that? Because it it's the polar vortex, right? Isn't that what they're talking about? No, they're calling it the bearing bomb this year. The bearing bomb? Yeah. That sounds very military. The bearing bomb? Like the bearing straight? I, I read the news. That's what it said. Interesting. Well, it's just coming up with clever things to talk about. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, we had a great time in Denver. We had a lot of good meetings with some of our stakeholders. We were there for some CancerCon reconnaissance, or should I say CancerConnaissance? CancerCon recon? Yeah. Cancer Recon? Cancer Recon. Oh, cross-eyed. We're, we're, we're having problems <laughs> right now. In any case, um, and also I was there with Allie to attend the third annual meeting of Critical Mass, which is a think tank leadership group in the young adult cancer movement of advocates and researchers and other CEOs and whatnot. Very productive stuff. Lots of exciting things on the horizon for our community. Med- medicinally, um, clinical trials-y, um, outcomes-y, all, all sorts of e. Etsy. Etsy. <laughs> Regretsy. <laughs> um, we do want to take a moment to uh, reflect on the passing of a really dear friend of mine. She was a, a very well-known a celebrity in the young adult cancer space. Uh, GM Brown was diagnosed with ovarian cancer several years ago. Had a recurrence, I think, two years ago, and then a third recurrence recently. And uh, things went downhill pretty quickly for her. Uh, unfortunately, in the past couple of weeks, she passed away. Over the weekend, very sad. Uh, Dean Brown, as of note, was a, a rock star from MTV Road Rules, right? Wasn't that what she was forced? Was it? She started on the Road Rules Real World Challenge yes. and the Fresh Meat. So she was Fresh Meat. She was Fresh Meat. She never was on either Road Rules. That's true. Okay. Yeah. So she was on Fresh Meat. But she went on to become a public advocate for ovarian cancer. She and I became really good friends. She started the website called MedGift, um, which I would encourage everyone to take a look at, medgift.com. It allows you to basically, it's like a registry for people with cancer. If you basically tell your friends and family what you're looking for, what you need, they can fulfill it for you. It's really a very powerful group um, that she put together. Uh, we do a lot of work with them. And actually, our chairman, Dr. Leonard Sender, was instrumental in helping her get that off the ground. So uh, DM was also my, my date. Uh, I got a plus one in 2008 to the inaugural Stand of the Cancer event. And Dr. Sender was there also, which is where they met. And uh, it was just a pleasure. She was an extraordinary woman. She spoke last year at Critical Mass in uh, 2013, and it's a huge loss. But she was such a a fighter, and she was very fierce about 
uh, rights and fertility and preservation and standing your ground. Um, but And she will be missed. So, Dean Brown, rest in peace. Uh, we love you. And uh, you will not be forgotten, for sure. Um, and I guess finally to that, uh, we have a special guest here in studio. The one and only uh, Mr. Alex Niles is in town. Um, actually, he lives here, but he's in town, meaning he's in the actual studio. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. I heard too many good things, so I had to check it out for myself. So now that you have no hair, I would imagine you had cancer. How did you guess? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, I was uh, unfortunately diagnosed with stage four gastric cancer, September 11th of 2013. That's a bad day in general. Yeah, forever etched in the history of the nation and now the Niles family as well. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, uh, what, that's a year and a half ago-ish? No, Uh, a year change. About about 14 months ago. Yeah. How you doing? I'm doing great. Still here. Still here. Wasn't supposed to make it to my 31st, and now I'm close to a couple months off from my 32nd. You don't look a day over 20. Thank you. Probably the hair thing. Yeah. Good skin complexion, too. You know, it's all in the coconut oil. Right. Mm. What? Okay. <laughs> you know, they make, like, coconut butter now. At this, 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 And you mentioned Chris Carr when we were yes. talking before the show, and, and I was reading her recent blog about coconut butter. It just sounds like, you know, when they first heard the phrase soy milk, yeah. you know, but now coconut butter. But anyway, I digress. Are we done? <laughs> oh, okay. Are you done? Cancer kind of registration, Maureen. Yes, CancerCon registration is launching very, very soon. We're really excited about it. We're finalizing the agenda and the kind of registration platform and all of that. So keep an eye out for it. I I have a feeling in the next few weeks you're going to see it. Um, So yeah, early bird registration is going to be $100. uh, And then starting February 1st, I'll go to $150. So there's a benefit to registering early. Also, we're expecting to sell out. Yes. So... Sign up as soon as you can. And there are hand gestures <laughs> inside the table. Sean Shapiro, our director of development, would like to say something. I was doing the YMCA version of VIP Club. Uh, oh, yeah. VIP. Tell um, us about that, Sean. A wonderful way to come to CancerCon and to support the event is to uh, fundraise via the VIP Club. Uh, and uh, check it out, cancercon.org. It's all laid out there. And if you have any questions, there's instructions on how to contact us. Well then. Awesome. Well, with that, let's get the show started. My first guest, Deb Ebenstein, is the author of Manny Petty Stat, a memoir which captures her two bouts with cancer but focuses on what happens after treatment. You mean it's not over when they say it's over? Uh, after surgery, when life is supposed to go back to normal, supposed to being the operative word there, but normal long, no longer exists. She tells us how she finds herself again. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show the one and only author, Deborah Evanstein. Thank you. Deb. Hi there. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. How you doing? Thanks for joining I'm us good. on here. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, guys, for having me. No, it's a pleasure. We we don't get a lot of authors on the air, but tonight's show is two authors in a row, and we're very excited because oh, it's, very we, special. it's important. People are writing really exciting things. I, I've been challenged to write a book. I have not because I so daunting we can talk about the dauntingness of actually writing a book but yes. uh, why don't we just get started you know you get cancer so nice you got it twice um yeah tell us we're 16 when it first started let's let's talk to that those teenage years yeah i was 16 when i was diagnosed with hodgkins and um kind of it it it, it blew my life up um you know i was a uh 
teenage girl in New Jersey, you know, sneaking out of my window at night and meeting my boyfriend and my friends to, you know, drink some beers at the ball field. And a few weeks later, didn't feel well and had a, you know, a tumor the size of a grapefruit in my chest. And it had spread, you know, through my lymph system. That's what, you know, Hodgkin's is a, um, a lymph cancer. And, you know, went on to pretty much having, um, around nine rounds of chemo and four months of uh, of radiation. So it was, you know, the rest of my junior and my senior year of high school. So it was, it was a, you know, a huge, huge uh, turning point in my life for so many reasons. So let's, let's spend some time on that because it's hard enough being a teen to begin with. Granted, this was, you know, um, probably what, 15, 20 years ago, but still, yeah. it, it, it still I remember being a teen a thousand years ago. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> Um, yeah. were, were all the obvious things we could conceive of actually happening to you, getting made fun of? You were a bald kid. You had to drop out of school. Like, what was that like for you as a 16-year-old? Yeah, you know, it wasn't, no, no. I I grew up in a really great town. Um, there was definitely no, there was no poking fun. There were, I mean, maybe at 12 or, or, you know, younger. But as a teenager, no, I, my community kind of rallied around me. Um what was the hardest part, I mean, for for a girl and a teenage girl so focused on, on you know, my appearance, um, you know, losing my hair was a huge deal. Um, that was um, extremely hard for me to kind of swallow that pill. Um, and once once that was swallowed and I kind of just had to, you know, grit and, grit, grit and bear it, um, then the hardest part became um, kind of fitting in. You know, I always fit in, whether it was through sports or through clothes or through, you know, just, you know, laughing with my girlfriends. I couldn't connect anymore. Um, You know, I I was still the same girl um, in so many ways, but, you know, my morning of of chemo or of my morning, you know, throwing up and then taking a nausea pill and then trying to, you know, get my clothes on to get to French class, um, you know, and then... Try, you know, getting there sweating, and my friends are laughing and, you know, talking about the party on Saturday night, and I just, I, I you know, I kind of, I felt, I felt alone. I felt really, really alone, um, and it was hard to kind of make, and I always use humor, as you'll, you know, as I write about, um, you know, I, I think the book's actually kind of funny, Um it was hard to even use humor and talk about cancer at 16 because 16-year-olds don't know how to respond. They don't know how to, um, you know, they didn't think it was funny. They didn't want to laugh at me. Um, so everyone just kind of became silent, and I just I started to withdraw. And, um, you know, for, for those months and years, it was, it was, it was isolating. But, you know, you, you, you get through it any way you can. Where were you treated back then? I was treated at Hackensack Medical Center in New Jersey, in Bergen County. That's where I grew up. Were you part of the Tomorrow's Children Foundation group? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. They were a huge, huge part of my life. Well, and actually, I, I know to, a lot to this of day, um, one of my closest, closest friends um, is my pediatric oncologist, who was, you know, a young oncologist at the time. I, and they were very, I mean, again, getting diagnosed in at, in the teenage years, Tomorrow's Children was a great incubator of peer support for a specific age group. Was that your solace? Was that your community? Did You didn't get that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're, you said you're, 
I'm proud to hear that you weren't terribly stigmatized at school, but I would imagine QMED became your, your home away from home. It definitely did. Um, it definitely did. I, I, although there there weren't that many teenagers in treatment when I was there. You know, you're there for, um, you know, once a week, and then you know the following week of treatment, or the following week go in for just for a checkup. And there weren't there were a lot of kids, and you know, a 16 year old. I did not want to be in a support room with a 10 year old. I was, I felt like I was, you know in a different world than than the younger kids. Um, they did a lot of art therapy and drama therapy, and I was just this pissed-off teen. Um, but I did find help in the staff. The staff was, um, you know, the psychiatrists, the, the social workers. They were the nurses and the doctors. They were unbelievably um, kind of just not just kind, but... Um, I could be whoever I, I I could be who I was within those walls. I mean, I, I even, you know, there's an example of when I was in college and it had been a few years post-treatment and I had come back to have, um, to have just a regular checkup and, um, you know, I'm walking through the halls and we're going, you know, we're going to kind of the well area and when I'm walking with my mother and I, my body is bringing me towards the, the clinic the infusion suite, and my mother says, you know, Deb, we're not going that way, and we're going this way. And I just yearned for to go back um, and see those nurses and see those doctors and see those people that I just could kind of walk in, and if I had blood on my shirt or vomit on my shirt or, you know, if I looked a mess and I felt like crap, it was okay. And it was it was met with, you know, you I could – I could be myself and I could add humor and I, or I, or not, I could be really angry and they just kind of, they were able to take it. Um, but yeah, no, that was a huge, Mars Children Hackensack was a huge part of, of my treatment and then of my, of my healing. Right. And then we can talk about how you did navigate for, you know, a good 12 years, just getting through um, the, the consequences of, of cure, if you would say that to, to the, to the extent um, you know, and, and that was probably challenging. You had surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, uh, issues of fertility, isolation, recurrence, all these things kept you identified. You know, this is who you were through yes. your formidable years growing up. And then all of a sudden at 28, you know, kind of the, the shit hit the fan before the other shit hit the fan. You had a rare blood condition. Was that resultant of your treatments from years ago? No, no, it was completely, it was just, it was just bad, bad luck. It had absolutely nothing to do with the Hodgkins. So um, that was, there's no, you know, there's no link. It was, it was just one of those things, you know, it was one in, I think, 25,000 people it happens to. So um, it was, it was just one of those things. Um, And that was, uh, that was a scary time, but. Again, you know, you persevere. What what was it called? I'm just curious. It was called ITP, and it's a blood disorder. It's it's idiopathic. I'm going to say this incorrectly, but idiopathic thrombocenia purpura. Um, hence, they call it ITP right. for short. Um, and idiopathic means origin unknown, um, and it is a platelet disorder where um, you just your platelets kind of stop clotting. 
um, or and your and um, your platelets or your platelets drop so low that your blood stops clotting because um, the platelet the part of your blood that is the clotting factor is your platelets. Um, so I just I started to just bleed and bruise and they didn't know what was happening and they didn't um, they couldn't fix it and I was in the hospital for weeks and it was really scary being in the hospital and not knowing um what was wrong and or th- they thought they knew what was wrong but the treatments weren't working um but then there was actually a misdiagnosis um at the time I didn't know it was a misdiagnosis but they had diagnosed me with this kind of it's called MDS myelodysplastic syndrome which is a kind of a pre-leukemia um when they saw it you know I was I I was diagnosed with the ITP for several weeks since the protocol wasn't working, they tested me for this MDS, and it came back positive, um, where I then was told I was going to be given a bone marrow transplant because that was the only cure for MDS. Um, my, you know, my advocacy uh, voice, which had just kind of been... Um, I was just starting to kind of get my voice in my 20s of of being a woman and being, you know, being empowered and now being a patient again. And I started to ask questions and I started to stand up for myself and I started to say, you know, I've been in the hospital for weeks and I'm just, I'm not sold yet. Um, do I have MDS? Do I have ITP? What I don't understand why, how, how, how is this happening? And they said, oh, you definitely have MDS. You have to have a bone marrow transplant. Um, it's right here on the slide. And I said, I know, but you took another slide four weeks ago, and the slide didn't say MDS. Um, so then they took a third slide, which is a, it's a bone marrow biopsy, and it came back negative. Um, but they still thought I did have this um, um, pre-leukemia. And, you know, we, we walked through the, the transplant floors, and I was getting prepared, and my brother was actually matched. He was a bone marrow match for me, with a, which was a blessing. Um, and I was really I – I was getting ready for my bone marrow transplant. And they said, you know – but I said, I said, you know, any any fourth grader will tell you that, you you know, you, you have a negative result, and then you have a positive result, and then you have a negative result. You know, I'm not going into that bone marrow chamber – until you are 100% positive that I have this. Um, so eight bone marrow biopsies later, um, and if anyone who's ever had them, you know they're not they're not easy. Um, it's not a flu shot. Um, you know it was they never could repeat that positive result again. And I, you know, I did in fact have ITP, and they did finally give me a medication when they stopped chasing the MDS. I had an amazing doctor in the city that said, I'm going to stop, you know, we can keep chasing the MDS, but you are, your platelets are 4,000, and I need to address that today, and we need to start giving you some medication to help you. And so they were down, you know, they tried medicines A, B, C, D, and E, and they tried F, and it worked. So I'm sure throughout this, again, I'm sure throughout this entire chapter, like, well, at least it's not cancer. And then yeah. all of a sudden, five years later, at 33, you're diagnosed with breast cancer eight weeks after the birth of your son. Yeah. And that has come as a massive shock. Talk us through that. And then, obviously, it's like, Jesus, enough of this. I'm writing a book. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of how it happened. Um I yeah, I was well Matthew was miraculous. I was, you know, I was um told I wasn't going to get pregnant, you know, just because of all of the chaos that happened to my body. Um my tests came back that I was um, you know, in menopause. And um and then I conceived Matthew and my my husband and I conceived Matthew and he was born and beautiful and healthy and I was breastfeeding. And, um, you know, when you're breastfeeding, you're kind of obsessed with your breasts and you're massaging them and rubbing them. And um, I found a lump and I, you know, my heart sank and I just, I had just this really bad feeling. And I called my radiologist and I came in and she did the biopsy and I saw it in her eyes. I mean, nothing, I don't know, like, you know, I guess they they you know they see this every day. They can they see from the sonogram um, what looks suspicious and what doesn't. And um, I knew immediately that that it was breast cancer. And she called me in a few hours later, and you know I had my husband and my mother, and it was um, it was horrifying. It was you know I had this infinite home that was this absolute miracle that I had wished for since I was seven years old to be a mother, and. Um, uh, it was, but in three seconds flat, it was, it was, it was go time. I, you know, suited up and what did I need to do? And, you know, I needed to get a double mastectomy and four rounds of chemo. And, um, you know, within two weeks I was, I was in the OR. So, um, it, you know, they were giving me what, you know, what's going to increase my, my chances of living. And that was it. And, you know, I thought, you know, I said, I said, where do I sign? So, um, it was, it was a real, that was a tough, tough year, but it was, you know, I, I have an unbelievable support network and great doctors. And that year it took a village to raise, to raise my son. Um, you know, my mother, my mother-in-law, everybody kind of rallied around us because obviously through mastectomy and reconstruction and chemo, you're out for the count for a lot of the time. So, um, and my husband's, you know, an incredible man. So we, um, we, yeah, we, we just kind of, you know, gutted through it. And then, yes, so and then, that, and then it was time catalyst? to write. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, what, when did the, the aha moment hit you? Like, Jesus, this is enough. I'm writing a book, got to get this out of me. You know, did you, did you ever even think you'd be an author? You know, what's it like? Never, never. And that's yeah. exactly what you just said. I need to get this out of me. It wasn't even I want to write a book. I was in bed recovering from my reconstruction surgery post-mastectomy, and it had been, you know, six months of the mastectomy, four rounds of chemo. Now I had this exchange surgery, and I'm lying in bed unable to move because I have these drains and I can't raise my arms. I can't pick up my kid. Um, but I was about to implode with all of these emotions coming down. And so I just picked up my laptop and I just I started to type. And I typed and I typed with my elbows kind of to my side because you're not allowed to lift your arms. And because, um, you know, there's only so many, so much Netflix you can watch. And I, okay. I poured, poured my soul. Um, onto these pages and in a few days I had a hundred pages and um you know I thought this is this is going to be for me this is like these it was it was my diary you know um and I kind of closed it and saved it and a few weeks later um was talking about it 
with uh, my husband and said, you know, maybe maybe this will resonate with someone. Maybe it will help. Maybe it will, you know, a lot of these pages are are me feeling alone and um and it's it's pretty it's raw there this isn't a um this is an unfiltered not so proper <laughs> version of right. going yeah. through cancer it's really so let's um, talk about the let's talk about the name Manny Petty stat clearly yes. we can construct that and figure out the bits and pieces but how is that personal to you it's um the Manny my Manny Petty um, obsession started w- during Hodgkin's when I was 16 and it only took a few months of the chemo treatments at that point um, for my face to be you know, completely descended with the prednisone and my body was bloated and my legs were gaunt um, my skin was gray like I couldn't even believe you know, skin could turn that color um, you know, I lost my hair and you know, especially for a 16-year-old, I mean, I just, I lost me. I did not, I couldn't look at a mirror. It was, it was frightening. Um, but one day I'm in my bedroom and I'm kind of looking, I'm just looking at my body and I'm, I noticed that my hands and feet are perfect. They're completely me. They, my nails, you know, had not broken off or they weren't weak. They were completely strong and I just I I just gravitated towards them and I just started rubbing my feet and I'm like what am I doing and, and I said I'm going to give myself a manicure and pedicure right now and I went to my mother's linen closet and grabbed her bag that I'd seen her open so many times and I got the colors and the creams and the cuticle oil and I just went into the bathroom and took a bath and started to you know paint them and look and and this light just kind of lit up inside me that had been dark for so many months, and I just found this kind of sense of beauty again that I felt had just been completely erased. And it became a ritual, and it became fun, and it became girly, and and um, it became just my time that had nothing to do with cancer. Um and connected me again to this world that um, I remembered, like, okay, I'm here. You know, you're lying in bed, you're so sick, you're, you know, you just, you can't remember a time where your stomach didn't hurt or you weren't nauseous. And um, and then I'd look at my toes and they'd be like sparkling red with glitter on top. And I'd say, oh, okay, like you, you're here. You just, you gotta, you gotta hold on because you're here. Um, and I took that with me. Deborah, I'm sorry. We have about a minute left in this segment here. I just want yeah. to get that the book is the Petty Stat. Who do you hope will read the book, and uh, how are you trying to? I mean, obviously, we hope you can plug the book on the show. What is the website that, for the book? The website's mannypettystat.com. Great. And all the real, you know, it's sold at all major retailers, but the retailers are listed on mannypettystat.com. Um, uh, but you can get it online or at major retailers. And I want to reach, you know, I obviously want to reach the the cancer community, um, you know, young women, young men. It's 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 about falling down hard um, and not knowing, you know, necessarily how to get back up at the time. So it's you know, and it's also it's it's a it's an easy, quick, um, you know, pretty light read for a dark subject. So and that was my goal. 
I, you know, I didn't, I don't, I didn't want to pick up something dark and heavy during those times, and so I wrote it in the best way I know how, which was just writing the way I speak, which is, you know, hopefully fil- filled with kind of humor. Well, your your story is, is fascinating, and you know, the, our next guest later in the show is an author of a book called "When Doctors Don't Listen." So it sounds like you're a really good testament to what to do when doctors don't listen. And congratulations on that. Um, Deb Ebenstein is the author of Manny Petty Stats, now available at mannypettystats.com. Memoir, capturing her two bouts with cancer, focusing on life after treatment. Deb, thank you so much for joining us on the Stupid Cancer Show tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate okay. it. Okay, Deb thank you. Ebenstein. Okay, Kenny, let's set up the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.supercancer.org. That is events.supercancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something can be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want anything out. We have three this week, uh, Delfield, Wisconsin, Garfield, New Jersey, and Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas, of course. It's new. <laughs> it's right next door to Houston. Yeah. The answer is lonely. We've got the cure for that. We're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app. That brings instant, anonymous, one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org or sign up to join the beta testing community and immortalize yourself in the app as a beta squad backer with a tax-deductible donation of 500 bucks. All right. We launched a newsfeed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories, as well as MC's favorite uh, recipes and bridal stuff that we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what he's reading, and we're reading 24-7, and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser for yourself. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help. Visit cancermademebroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. All right, it's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. There's a special Monday coming in the next couple of weeks that you may want to check out. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got a great skateboard. We've got Flip the Cancer Bird, our latest fleshy mascot. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is your stupid Stupid cancer Cancer news. All right, now the real meat and potatoes. Dr. Leanna Wen is an attending emergency physician and director of patient-centered care research at George Washington University. She's the author of the critically acclaimed, When Doctors Don't Listen, How to Avoid Misdiagnoses and Unnecessary Tests. And she's also a frequent commentator and columnist on NPR, Huffington Post, and Psychology Today. She also follows me on Twitter, which is all that really matters. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Dr. Leanna Wen. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here and also to, of course, follow you on Twitter. Um, that's certainly the highlight of my of my uh, social media. Just put that at the highest rankings of your SEO strategy and, and your key interest on LinkedIn. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've done that already. Oh, okay. Well, she's done it already. Great. Um, again, I'm, I'm excited because clearly... Just the words when doctors don't listen is probably a hot button for pretty much anyone you could talk to under any circumstance, anywhere. 
And I would imagine as a doctor yourself, you've probably been a patient at some point in your life who, whose doctor did not listen to them. Um, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to a really, really fascinating conversation with you for the next 30 minutes. Uh, well, same here. I think it's such an important topic, and we know that communication is critical for every field, for the airline industry, for education, and certainly for medicine, too. So what uh, – you went to Georgetown to get all these fancy-schmancy phenomenal things, and you're just crazy smart, and I'm really kind of ashamed to be talking to you as the dumbest guy in the room right now. So you're also like a Rhodes Scholar and a TED speaker, so I can't even compete. But what, what got you into this in the first place? Well, you said it actually just now that it has to do with personal experience. And so for me, my mother was misdiagnosed for over a year before she was finally diagnosed with what turned out to be metastatic breast cancer. And I was her caregiver for eight years and saw for myself just how much of this disconnect exists between what it is that patients really need in their care and what it is that our healthcare system is trying to provide. And it's not because doctors are bad or nurses are bad or we're trying to not listen. I mean, I guarantee you that all of us went into the profession because we want to connect with patients and we want to listen. But there are many pressures in our healthcare system and many forces that make it difficult for us to spend the type of time that we really need to pay attention to our patients. And that's how I got interested in this topic from my mother's and mine and my family's very personal experience. Brian, it's really easy to say the system is broken and no one listens and there's so much stuff going on in seven minutes of this. But are you able to boil this down? What, what's been your discovery of, of the, the pragmatic implications of our, our healthcare system that presents the most significant barriers to improve doctor-patient relationships beyond the obvious of potential just personality conflicts? So you make a great point that it's easy to complain and say, oh, it's a system that's at fault and therefore there's nothing I can do. Well, I'd say it's quite the opposite that, yes, the system does have to improve and there are things that aren't perfect, but this is your health. And so there are things that you can do today. So there are lots of problems, right? We know that doctors are under even more pressure than ever before to spend time doing things to patients rather than listening to our patients, and the studies also show that doctors will interrupt patients in something like 10 seconds after they begin speaking, which is really shocking because how much can you really get across in 10 seconds? But then the counterpoint to that, I would say, is if you know that your doctor has limited time and if you know that you'll get interrupted very quickly, then make sure that you really come prepared. Know that your doctor, your time with your doctor is very little. That may be not ideal. That's not the best way to do things. But um, if you know that in advance, you can prepare for your doctor's visit. So, for example, know your medical history, know what medications you're taking, um, know your allergies, and also prepare your story in advance. Know why it is that you're going to see the doctor that day and prepare a list of questions that you'll be asking. Those are all things that are very much in your control to do. And even while we're trying to reform the medical system, those are things that you can take control today and try to improve. Right. So we talk about the, you use the term like cookbook pathways, and I really like this because when you call customer service at like a credit card company or a bank, what you are saying to the person on the phone, they're actually typing into a computer, and the computer spits out a response for them to tell you. The, the less thinking the individual does and the more rote the computer spits out a response, 
the more efficient they are to save money and time and either annoy you to hang up the phone or not resolve your issue. But you can't really do that in medicine because you're dealing with people's lives. And how does that factor into the learning process when you're going through med school, especially in 2014 when people show up at the doctor's office with either 75 pieces of paper they printed out from Dr. Google or 65 URLs that you don't have time to look at? (laughs) Well... In medical education, we learn that it's important to listen to this patient, but unfortunately we see in medical practice that there's very little time to listen, and there's a preponderance of these pathways that you talked about, these algorithms, these checklists, and you know, I'm all for checklists, right? So if you're going to have surgery, or if I'm going to have surgery, I really want to make sure that the surgeon washes her hands, that they follow a protocol to make sure that no sponges are left in my body. Those types of checklists are fine. But to use checklists to make a diagnosis means that everybody with chest pain is going to get the same workup and the same blood test, no matter if you're a 20-year-old who's healthy or an 83-year-old with a history of heart disease. That's not the best way to get medical care. And so there are ways to get yourself off of these pathways. For example, if your doctor orders a bunch of quote-unquote blood tests, you might want to just ask, what are these tests for? What are you looking for? What are the side effects of the testing? What happens if this test is negative and everything is normal? What does that mean then? And so understanding why every test is being done helps to avoid these algorithms, these cookbook recipes, and helps to direct you back onto this path of personalized care that's tailored to you. The second part of your question addressed the what happens if patients bring in all these printouts from the Internet, these URLs and Google things. And, you know, I actually think it's a good thing for you as a patient to look up information yourself. Um, the more engaged patients are, the more we call it patient, the more activated patients are, the better their healthcare outcome is going to be because they'll be real partners in their care with their doctor. But there is a good and bad way to approach that. A good way would be to say to your doctor, I'm the expert when it comes to my body. I'm around my body 365 days a year, 24-7, and so I'm the expert when it comes to my body, and you're the expert when it comes to medicine. That's why I want us to work together to figure out what it is that I have. Something like that is soft, it's couched well, and gives the doctor a lot more nuance and depth um, and will allow for that conversation. Rather than you bringing in a bunch of handouts and saying, I need these 10 tests and I need these three medications, that's not inviting a partnership. Right, and again, that that also challenges a lot of the barriers to improve communications because doctor-patient communications has been a term thrown about in the industry and in the commercial world and medical world for many, many years now. Do you think it is improving given the seven-minute rule with a lot of insurance companies? No, I don't think it's improving at all. I think it's gotten a lot worse for a lot of reasons. So first is the at time, as you mentioned, that there's less time than ever for doctors to spend with patients, and that time with patients is not reimbursed versus if the doctor orders a bunch of tests or orders a bunch of treatments and procedures and surgeries, the doctor actually gets more money. So where is the incentive to really listen to the patient? And the rise in technology as well. I mean, I think everybody has had the experience of going into a doctor's visit and seeing a computer between you and your doctor and your doctor spending all that time typing and clicking boxes rather than looking at you. 
Well, I can tell you as a physician that that's not something that I want either. I don't want to be sitting there clicking boxes. And yet that technology has had the adverse or perverse effect of getting doctors even less time with patients. There was a study done that showed resident doctors in training spend 40% of their time with computers versus 12% of their time with patients. And really, that's not what anybody wants, not what patients want and not what doctors want. And so that's the paradoxical effect of our technology. And I think related to technology, too, there is this reverence of technological advances. And we say, oh, well, I want this CT scan. I want this MRI. And certainly technology has brought good things to us, but it's also made us even more reliant on testing and less so on the importance of listening and connecting and communication. Have you seen um, any, uh, I would just say, improvement in outcomes, or, or what role has the sort of the digital health wearables market had? I, I, my my uh, doctor is at NYU, and they actually let you bring your Fitbit results into the into the, the clinic with you and review them with you. So I don't know if it's because the doctors there happen to wear Fitbits and they understand this, but this electronic consumer side of records of managing your pulse or how much calories you burned. Is, is that any way a factor to improving this? Um, I have mixed feelings about this. I think that there are some patients for whom self-tracking is a very good thing. Patients with chronic diseases, for example, who are quite literate and who are used to using technology can really benefit from these wearables because people want to track. Some people at least want to track their health and want to know all these things that you mentioned with your heart rate and their blood pressure and their, you know, how they're doing every day. Maybe you are diabetic and you have glucose issues and you, maybe you have migraines and you want to monitor your headaches. I mean, there are many good uses of wearables and they can potentially add to um, better treatment for you because instead of just getting one measurement when you happen to see your doctor once every six months, now you have multiple measurements every day. That could be good. But I worry about two things. First of all, there are many people who may not really want to do wearables, either because they don't have the, um, they don't have the resources to do so or the ability to, to, uh, to do so. And so quite a lot of people would not be able to benefit, at least at current, from self-tracking. And also, I worry about self-tracking potentially leading to more unnecessary things being done. Um, I was at a conference recently where this doctor produced this. Um, he talked about his experience. He was connected to an EKG machine through his iPhone that found that actually he had some arrhythmia in the middle of the night, an irregular heartbeat in the middle of the night. That then led him to get uh, a cardiac echo, an ultrasound of his heart, a stress test, and eventually a catheterization through his groin to look at the vessels in his heart. Now, one can argue that all of this was totally unnecessary, that he probably found something that had no relevance whatsoever. And so I worry about this because we don't know what continuous tracking may bring and how much unnecessary data might be produced that then leads to further unnecessary testing and procedures. Right, but and it just seems like the elephant in the room is the fact that people are starting to adopt wearables more now that Apple is launching their watch, and you know there, there's this nonstop pervasiveness of affordability in a lot of these products, and I'm just curious to see, I don't think anyone has the answers yet, three to five years from now, what role will they play in this sort of um, hypochondriacal potential we could have with over-testing? So I'm on your side with this. Uh, I wanted to talk about 
you have um, the eight pillars to better diagnosis. And, you know, there are inherent challenges with patients being more educated if they don't come from communities that have direct access to care or they're, you know, on certain healthcare plans or they're limited to how frequently or how often they can see things. But let's talk about that. What are the eight pillars to better diagnosis in your book? Um, so I talk about these eight pillars because I want to give people something that they can use, not just say, again, that there are so many problems in our healthcare system, everything is hopeless, but I want to give people a chance to say, all right, I can use these things um, in, at my next doctor's visit. And you know, perhaps I can't use all of them at once and not all of them are relevant at once, but let me try to address these things. So would you like for us to go through the eight pillars or for me to talk about the most important ones or... What do you think would be the most useful? Well, let's let's talk about let's just say all eight, and we can focus on like the top two because they're very they're very in depth, and a lot of them take some practice. A lot of them, you know, are, when you're in triage and when you're in crisis, it's kind of hard to to follow them or remember them all. But they're very important. So let's just why don't we just list them first? Sure. So actually, if you don't mind, let me. Um, I want to elaborate on the first one in particular because that sure. is for me, the most important one and the most important thing that you can do to make a difference in your health. And the first and most important pillar is tell your whole story. Now, what I mean by story is the story of your illness, not your symptoms. Most people are trained to come in and tell their doctor, I have chest pain, and then wait for their doctor to ask questions. How bad is your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? Do you have any nausea associated with it? And so on and so forth. But think about the last time that you saw an old friend. What do you say to them? Probably, how are you? What have you been up to, right? What if instead you'd ask them, are you married? Are you divorced? Are you employed? Why'd you get fired? So you wouldn't do that. But even if you did, they probably would not give you nearly the richness of the response or the answers about how they're actually doing as if you just asked them, what have you been up to? And that's the same thing with your doctor's visit as well. Studies have shown that 80% of diagnoses can be made just based on your story, the history of your illness alone. That's better than any test or combination of tests or physical exam or anything else out there. And so it's really critical because only you know your story. So instead of saying, I have chest pain, what about saying something like, I was running my usual three miles when I got out of breath at mile one? I felt this crushing pain in my chest. I sat down and it went away. That would tell the doctor so much more than if he or she asked you 40 questions. And so tell your story and make it concise. Make it 10 seconds even and practice it in advance because when you're in the heat of the moment, when you're in the ER or at your doctor's visit, that's not the best time to begin to practice telling your story or to begin thinking about how your story really fits together. So that, I think, is the most important pillar. And I would imagine um, that, that nuanced and highly individualized, too, because some people, again, practicing in a mirror and, you know, low literacy and discussing this in urban areas and, and some of the, you know, disparity communities, it, it, this is something that it, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap yourself around sometimes, but it makes complete sense. Yeah, and it's something that actually everybody does. So imagine that you are talking to your mom or your sister or your friend or your somebody else about why you're going to the doctor, right? I mean, let's say you come home and um, and your spouse is saying, I, I need to go to, 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 to the ER. There must be a reason, and your spouse will be able to tell you some kind of story. 
Well, that's the same story that you should be telling to your doctor as well. So everybody has the capacity to do this because we do this anyway. And the key is to practice it over and over again. Practice it in the mirror, as you said. Practice it to your friends. Practice it to your loved ones. And practice it on your way to the doctor as well. There's plenty of time also usually in the waiting room between waiting for the nurse and waiting for, for, uh, for the doctor. Often the nurse will ask you for the story. The doctor will ask you again. Don't be angry that you're being asked multiple times. See that as a chance to practice your story. Right. So let's get to the uh, the rest. I mean, tell your whole story. I mean, again, sure. uh, your pillar too is you know assert yourself, be your own advocate. How easy is that? How practical is that? And how receptive are doctors to assertive patients? You should assert yourself in a in a way that's suitable for you and for your doctor. So different people have to practice this in different ways because it depends on your personality and on the relationship with with you and your doctor. But for most people, I think that line of I'm the expert when it comes to my body, you're the expert when it comes to medicine, let's work together to figure out what I have, that's something that can be very helpful. Um, the third step is participate in your physical exam, which, again, it depends on your personality. Some people feel really squeamish and don't really want to know but what I mean by this is just a simple statement to your doctor. If the doctor is listening to your lungs and you're coming in with a cough, you can ask your doctor, hey, what did you hear after listening to my lungs? That's another way of asserting yourself into your doctor's thought process as well. My fourth pillar so, is to make – sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. My fourth pillar um, is to make the differential diagnosis together. So the differential diagnosis is the list of all the possible things that could possibly cause your symptoms. And that list is what the doctor begins to work with to say, this is what you most likely have, this is what you don't have, this is what we have to test for. And so another way, then again, of participating and asserting yourself in the doctor's thought process. Number five is closely tied to this, which is partnering for the decision-making process, and it's to figure out what it is that you should be doing after that which then leads to six, which is apply tests rationally. I'm happy to expand on this in a little bit, but I'll just read the other pillars as well. Because once you apply the test rationally, whether they're, you're getting testing or not, number seven is to use common sense to confirm the most likely or the working diagnosis. And eight is to integrate diagnosis into the healing process, because diagnosis and getting the diagnosis is the beginning of understanding what it is that you may have and how to get better. So the flip side of all of this, and these are phenomenal ways to really take a step back and understand what engagement really means from a patient to a provider. The flip side, of course, is the medical side, the, the human aspect of who this physician is or who this nurse is or who this, this um, you know, a, a PA is, and uh, feeling like you can trust them and having them understand that perspective. Are, are on the flip side, on the other side of the coin here, are residents, interns, and fellows recognizing that you're the doctor speaking out about, you have to do this, you have to be receptive to this, and how has that in any way shifted perception on the clinical side? Um, I'm not quite sure that I understand your question. Is it about the training of medical doctors and how and whether that's been affected by patient-centered care? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's partially generational. If you tend to see a doctor who has been around for decades or so, they're not necessarily used to speaking with patients. They're used to just sort of dictating. And some of them are coming around, and it's, it's very personalized. But the next generation of, of, of 
doctors, uh, primary care specialists out there, are they aware of these voices coming out of your your neck of the woods that we need to listen more to patients if we're not doing that? Or is it is it obvious and you're just reinforcing that? You know, it's interesting because I am not totally convinced that it's generational. So I've had people ask me, well, what kind of doctor should I choose? Should I choose a man or a woman? Should I choose an older or younger doctor? Who is more likely to be receptive to my to my message? And it brings me back to an experience I had at a at a bookstore. I was giving a talk, and um, there was a woman in the back of the room who raised her hand and asked me, what do you see when you see me? And I didn't know what to say. She was a woman in her late 60s, and so I didn't know whether I should say a younger woman, an older woman, certainly not. Um, She was short like me. I didn't know how to answer the question. And so she said to me, I'll tell you what you see. You see an old woman. You see someone that if you let me talk, you think that I'll just wax on and on and I'll never stop. And I know that's what you see because that's what my doctor sees. And that's why he never listens to me. And yet this woman was the founding dean of a nursing school, one of the first nurse practitioners in this country. And of all people who wanted to be engaged in her care, it would have been her. And so it, that taught me a lesson about making assumptions because we as physicians often make assumptions of our patients. But by the same token, patients often make assumptions of their physicians, which are not going to be correct either. I've seen older doctors who are very much into shared decision-making and and involving patients and really by the mantra of nothing about me without me, which to me defines patient-centered care. Um, But I've also seen younger doctors who are very comfortable with this from a different perspective, maybe more comfortable with self-tracking devices and, and decision aids. And so, but I've also seen younger doctors and older doctors alike and male and female alike who are not so used to partnering and are not so great at it. And so I think it's dependent on the individual. Um, But I will say that it's a movement that is building. It's building slowly, so I don't think it's a given at all that this is something that's um, taught and fostered in medical school. I will say that it's something that medical students are entering with the right mindset, that they're coming in thinking, I do really want to listen to my patients. But we have to make sure that these medical students get the right mentors because otherwise they're learning the wrong way to practice medicine, and that's what they're going to do in their, in their careers as well. So the book is called Point, Point Blank, When Doctors Don't Listen, How to Avoid Misdiagnosis and Unnecessary Tests. So you are in favor of reducing tests and augmenting communications, but let's, we can't have that conversation without talking about the fact that doctors are incentivized to have more tests. And is there a middle ground there? And and could you uh, share some opinion on that? I think that doctors should do what's best for patients, not what's best for their pocketbooks, not not what's best for their hospital or their practice's pocketbooks. I mean, I've often heard, for example, doctors say, well, I, I know this patient doesn't really need IV fluids, but I'm going to order it because I can bill more for this. That, to me, is just shameful or doctors who are receiving money from drug companies and medical device companies, not for research, but for attending conferences and for, um, and for speaking on behalf of their medications, that's shameful. And studies have shown that that does affect doctors' prescription habits. That's something that happened to me and my mother on a personal level as well, that my mother lost her address book and then found out that her oncologist 
actually um, was, you know, she looked up her oncologist's phone number on the Internet and found out that he was actually a highly paid speaker for a drug company and, in fact, often spoke on behalf of the same chemo regimen that he had given her. And, you know, it really made her doubt because we wanted to believe that he was prescribing this for the right reasons. And maybe he was, but maybe he wasn't. And whenever there are other interests that are financial and personal that are separate from the patient's best interest, that really puts the patient and the doctor's interest at odds to each other. And for the patient to not know about it becomes even more of a problem because that when the patient does find out, then it leads to fear and it leads to mistrust. Very well said. I want to round out the uh, end of the segment here by discussing the Affordable Care Act because clearly that is a massive split conversation around the country. Um, and uh, how do you see ACA solving and or causing any more or less problems with uh, everything you're bringing out in the book? As with everything, um, ACA is a mixed bag. There are some great things about the ACA. I think expanding access is really important, providing coverage not, um, and um, not being prejudiced against people who have pre-existing medical conditions. That's very important, and also the focus on prevention. And at least it's trying to do something to promote health care and not just um, propagate sick care. I think that's very good. But I worry about some aspects, which are the, um, the strict adherence to standards and metrics, because then I worry about more checklist mentality being done. Already doctors have so many boxes to check every day with every patient. With the ACA, potentially there could be even more. And so figuring out how we can have good quality metrics and can measure what's going on with our doctors and with hospitals is very important. But, um, but not to the point that it gets further in the way of workflow and reduces the time with patients even more. Right. I would, I would just point out, because our show, the cancer show, is a voice of young adult cancer, and we are, the, the, I guess, the age group most likely to be misdiagnosed with cancer by primary care. And many, many of the stories, including, I don't know if you were listening to our, our earlier guest this morning, yes. uh, earlier the show, was, uh, you know, she was diagnosed with cancer at 16, had a unrelated crazy blood disease like 14 years later that the, the doctors would not agree on. She had multiple tests, and it took like eight different tests to confirm that it was something they didn't understand. And she was constantly advocating for her own body, even to the specialists, to the hemons out there. Um, and, it, you know, it, uh, this isn't a, co- a conversation to solve this problem tonight, of course, but you know, this notion of when doctors don't listen is highly resonant to our audience. And especially once you've gone beyond primary care, the oncologist, and you're at that level of decision-making, it's ever more critical to follow a lot of these guidance steps that you're putting out there to be able to tell your story. Um, so, Anthony, what, I guess, what, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say that you said that so well, much better than I could in terms of the importance of self-advocacy. And I certainly learned that the hard way as well with my mother. She had been telling people, because she was young at the time as well, in her early 40s, when she began coming down with kind of nonspecific symptoms of feeling tired and being short of breath and having this cough. And her oncologist, or not her oncologist, primary care doctor, kept on saying, well, it's nothing. It's a virus. It's depression. He prescribed her Prozac and Valium for depression and anxiety. So I can very much relate to that and can say that, 
if you know that this is not right for you, you have to speak up because nobody else will. And uh, just final thoughts, what has been the response from the medical industry, um, doctors, uh, PAs, nurses? Like, your book is, is, it's not polarizing at all. People just love it. It makes a lot of sense. It, it generates a lot of emotion. It's a touch point. What's been the response? You know, it's interesting. In medicine, there is this um, saying, you but not me, that doctors are egotistical. And, for example, when asked, do you think that drug companies giving gifts will influence doctors' prescription habits, people will say, yes, other doctors, but no, not for me. It will not influence my prescription habits. And I saw that the same thing happened with this as well, that people will say, well, yes, it will influence uh, or that, you know, it's a problem that doctors don't listen. But I, as a doctor, I listen. Um, and so at least I think this, is, this book is the beginning of people recognizing that there is a problem. Whether they recognize it in themselves is, is a different question. But I think we all agree that there are many factors that make it difficult for doctors to listen and that it would be great if patients can help us better help them as well. Right. And extraordinary insights. And, and uh, I... I the book is just, again, it's so resonant. I was misdiagnosed for eight months and with terminal brain cancer, which they gave me Robitussin for. So you can imagine that they really weren't listening to me in any way, shape, or form. And that was in the Stone Age of the 90s when there really wasn't any conversation between doctors and patients. But it does happen today. So I can't thank you enough for being this voice of reason, this voice of rationality, and just starting a conversation that needed to be started uh, Dr. Leanna Wan is the attending emergency physician and director of patient-centered care research at George Washington University and the author of the critically acclaimed book, When Doctors Don't Listen, How to Avoid Misdiagnosis and Unnecessary Tests, now on sale where all books are sold. Thank you so much, Dr. Leanna Wen. Thank you. All right. Take care. Good luck. <laughs> That's our show. Alex? Yes, sir. Were you misdiagnosed? I wasn't misdiagnosed, but I was in the category of a young, healthy guy. Never thought I'd have any diagnosis. Yeah. I just kept up with symptoms on my own. Thought I was tough. Said, hey, I'm a young, healthy guy, like I said. No right. family history. Um, wanted to be a tough guy. Just bravado. Yeah, just bravado. I mean, I was starting my own company as well, so there was a, not a big interest on my part from an insurance perspective. Right. And then my story, like many, uh, in, in regards to the gastric side of things, was I had a weird feeling at the beginning of summer last year. And then by the end of the summer, I lost 20 pounds. Obviously, wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was in excruciating pain. Um, I thought I had an ulcer. I thought I had an ulcer. I didn't think there would be anything right. with the C word. And to hear cancer, let alone stage four, all throughout my liver, all throughout my body, was obviously a punch in the gut. Both literal and unintended. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, it, the the level of misdiagnoses that happens, and I'm, again, I, this is the first type of author guest we've had on the show in in seven years to raise this conversation. And I've been involved. She consults for Picori, which is the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which I'm involved with as well. And there's so many levels down the rabbit hole of. Um, uh, of what that looks like. How do we change the, the narrative? What is the narrative? What's influencing the narrative? And uh, it, this is definitely something that I know our community is highly 
up in arms about just getting misdiagnosed and not being taken seriously, even when we're caregivers. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a whole shift towards patient centric views. Yeah. I mean, I know everything that I'm working on and advocating for is about that. Right. And I think what Dr. Wen said, it resonates at least to me very loud and clear, which is it's about an open conversation. It's about an open dialogue. Obviously there are experts that know much more than the patients, but I know how I feel. Patients know how they feel. Yeah. And sometimes that's just as important as a test, a scan, blood work. Right. So, well, Alex Niles is uh, the founder of CureWare. What's your website? Uh, www.mycureware.com. CureWare, W-E-A-R. Correct. Right. So let's give a little plug here. What is it? What is CureWare? Uh, at a very high level, it's a clothing line that allows patients to uh, go through treatment a little bit more comfortably. Uh, basically, it allows patients to keep their clothes on while providing nurses and doctors access to medical ports and pick lines. Uh, additionally, it's a line for supporters where every purchase results in about 10% of proceeds going towards providing shirts for patients. Um, so my experience, got sick of taking my shirt off, got sick of seeing kids, women expose themselves of all ages, men right. as well. And this is a way to make it a little bit more patient-centric, to make it less uncomfortable for the patient, less uncomfortable for the nurses and obviously right. caretakers. So. It's uh, hoping to make a big difference. It already is in my life and, and the few that are involved in it. Um, and it's all, again, about patient-centric views. For me, the most fascinating like patient-centered shift in medicine was when, I think it was Target, inve- reinvented the prescription bottle. Yeah. And it changed compliance and adherence like by 2,000%. And I'm not making, those are real numbers. And, like, and yet I'm still going to like my local pharmacy and getting a little crappy Right. Pill bottle. Why hasn't that shifted? But you know, patients can make a difference, and their voices matter. So amazing, amazing. So the CureWare is, you know, I could make a really unclever attempt to metaphorize this as the the when you had to take a dump in the old west, you just unbutton your, your the back of your pants and yeah. the hole. Yeah, whatever that was called. Oh, I don't know, a onesie, a trap. No, no the trap door, pajama trap door, the trap yeah. door. <laughs> but for ports. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, but uh, you know, as you I know, try. I really try. It's late. <laughs> no, it's a big deal. Though. It's a Thanks big for deal. listening to our show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really excited to have you here. We'll formally have you as a guest on the show. But you live here, yes, and so you're never, you can never leave now. I'm hooked. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for all, all you right. guys are doing. All right, Alex Niles, and with that, uh, any final thoughts, Kenny? Do you have thoughts? I am thoughtless. <laughs> okay. All right, well, with that, it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 328th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Hope you stick. Stupid cancer. Like to thank our guests, Deb Evanstein and Dr. Leanna Wynn. Next week's show, the Cancer Insurance Checklist is a real thing created collaboratively among dozens of advocacy groups. Join us as we welcome Linda House. Executive Vice President of External Affairs at the Cancer Support Community, and Elizabeth Hoffler, Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at Prevent Cancer Foundation, to talk about this groundbreaking resource. Survivors follow it on Heather Swift. 
Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes Podcast, and right here at Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of myself and the Super Cancer News Team, Kenny Kane, Marine Team, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. We're all veterans of a battle and the bulk of